Welcome to the Optimal You podcast. This is pharmacist Steve Ersfeld. Grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 20 of the Ersfeld Pharmacy Optimal You podcast. I'm your host, pharmacist Steve Ersfeld. The goal of the Optimal You podcast is to have a visit with providers and others in the healthcare industry and outside of healthcare industry in this instance, um, in our area and beyond, uh, that provide services that might be helpful to you in your journey to becoming the Optimal You. If you listen all the way to the end of the podcast, I have a special offer for you as a gift for taking the time to listen. Today's guest is Barnaby Holmes. If you listen, um, uh, before we start the visit with Barnaby, I need to let the listeners know that this podcast provides general information and is a discussion about health and health-related subjects. The information provided in this podcast is not intended or should be or should not be construed as medical advice nor is the information a substitute for professional medical expertise or treatment. Uh, just a little bit of background on our guest, Barnaby Holmes. So I, I met Barnaby through my, my daughter, who works at um, Intermix Coffee Company in Minneapolis, and Barnaby is um, an employee there. But Barnaby has an interesting background, and, I, and I'm going to share that with you a little bit here, and then we'll dive in on, on the conversation. So... Barnaby pulled his first shot of espresso in 20 or 2002 and instantly fell in love with the process. He's worked in hospitality ever since, applying his barista experience to raise the standard of coffee in environments where high-quality coffee and espresso may not be the norm, such as restaurants, hotels, and bars. He currently works as a sales representative and lead trainer for Intermix Beverage in Minneapolis, and has had the pleasure of helping hundreds of people develop their skills in latte art, espresso calibration, sensory analysis, brewing techniques, and best practices. In 2019, he won the Midwest Coffee Tasters Championship and currently serves as a head judge and committee member of the United States Barista Championships. Outside of coffee, his passions are mountain biking, which we're going to have a good visit about, uh, CrossFit, bowling, the Tour de France, cats, Welsh soccer and Welsh literature, and ramen. And before Barnaby says a word, you're going to love to listen to him because his accent is is amazing. So Barnaby, welcome to the Optimal You podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Steve. It's it's funny. I wrote that bio and, and sent it to you, but it's very uh, it's very interesting here it being read back to you because I'm like, huh. I, I did do those things. Yes, <laughs> yes, I did. And they, those are my passions. Yeah, that is awesome. I, I like to hear that. So I I, uh, I had to ask my wife was as I read this to her, she said, well, you have to ask him if he's Welsh. So what's, what's your what's your uh, national background? I'm, I'm Welsh. I'm from Wales. I was uh, I moved there when I was a very, very small child. Like oh, all I've ever known is Wales. I'm uh, from a small village called Bumbles, which is just outside Swansea. Um, famous for Bonnie Tyler and Catherine Zeta-Jones live in my village, which is just coincidental. Um, I'm not friends with them, but that's how Mumbles might be known. Um, and I moved to Minneapolis in 2017. My wife is from here. We met in Wales, got married, and she imported me. Oh, wow. That's great. We're lucky to have you then, for sure. Yeah. So so was there, um, you said you pulled your first shot in 2002. Um, if you, As you think back over your history in coffee, 
Um, what what are maybe a memorable moment or two that was like, wow, I just can cannot forget this moment in in my coffee uh, history. Yeah, um, I mean, pulling my first shots, I don't remember those exactly. Um, what I will say, just to give you like a, a touch of background, prior to me getting that job, I was twenty by 21 I can't do the math but I was approximately 20 or 21 and, and from the age of 16 to 20 21 I, I very much drifted I had no real um no real trajectory I had no career ambitions beyond what I had when I was 16 and when I was 16 I suffered a fairly serious knee injury that kind of curtailed those because they were ambitions to, do, to partake in physical theater and I sport had always been my life in every aspect as well and so I had all of these things that I loved to do and then found myself at the age of 16, unable to do them and just kind of drifted around until it was like 2021. I, I couldn't really hold down a job for more than three or four weeks just because I was so unmotivated and just really didn't enjoy it. And I come from an area that's very, very beautiful with lots of beaches, surfing community. So like there's a lot of things you can do with very little money. So that doesn't help you when you're that age and drifting. Um, but I remember I got a job in a, in a, in a local cafe bar and restaurant that was a, a, a very busy tourist spot. Um, and I thought it was probably just going to be another two to three week job where I just couldn't pack it and would just walk out. Um, but they had two, four group espresso machines. A four group espresso machine is a, a large, large espresso machine. It's able to pull four shots of espresso at the same time. Of course, at this point, I had no idea that, uh, anything about espresso. I didn't drink coffee. I, I didn't like it at all, but I was just shown the basics on the bar, like how to operate things. And there was a guy working there, a guy called Dylan, who I don't know anymore, but I just remember he he poured a shot of espresso and then he steamed milk and poured milk into it. And I can remember the glossy texture of this milk. And I remember the pattern. I had never seen anything like that in my life. And it's a moment that I hadn't really thought about until fairly recently, but such a significant moment on me because it just looked beautiful. And I, and I just remember wanting to do that. Like I remember thinking, I want to try and be able to do that. And so... I stayed longer than three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, just trying to perfect the art of making drinks look like that. And so when I think about defining moments in my coffee career, I think that really was it because I ended up working there for four years um, and I ended up getting very good at latte art. And I'll say this, this was before latte art was called latte art, it's 20 years ago, but it was just that was the thing that grabbed me. Um, and I, I was making coffee for two or three years before I even liked the taste of it. Um, it was just the, the, it's the process of making it that really stuck out to me and then grabbed me and, 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 and really kind of kept me in the industry at that early stage. So I would say that's probably the most, you know, I've had lots of memorable moments. I'm very fortunate to have had the career that I've had in, in coffee up to this point and, and hopefully in the future as well. Um, I've had so many memorable moments, almost too many to mention, but I think as like a foundational memory, um, and a moment, I think that's got to be a very special one. It'll always stick with me. That's awesome. That's cool. Um, so you you are you're a coffee judge. How, how do you <laughs> how do you get into that? And and tell 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 the the audience a little bit about that. It, I mean, it's not as pretentious. I was going to say it's not as pretentious as it sounds because it sounds like I just go around judging people's coffee, which is not the case. I, I'm, I'm very unjudgmental when it comes to other coffees and cafes, um, but I am involved in coffee competitions, um, and coffee competitions are incredibly geeky, but uh, very important within the industry. Um, there are a variety of competitions. The United States Coffee Championships has five different competitions that take place within it. Um, I'm a judge for the Barista Championship 
So I was a barista for 12 years and then I was involved in management as well before I got the role um, and work as a sales rep and trainer now. But because of that, I'm, I'm fairly well versed in the technical aspects of baristaship. Um, and so I just started judging in 2018 and then I began head judging this year. This is my first year operating as a head judge. Um, but the coffee competitions, there's, there's a roasting competition, there's a cup tasters competition, which I was very fortunate to win the, the, the Midwest version in 2019. Uh, there's a variety of competitions, but the barista championship is just where the barista has to prepare a set number of drinks for a number of judges. There are four sensory judges and the barista will make four espressos and then make four milk-based drinks and then make four signature beverages, which are espresso-based drinks that have no alcohol in them but then can have anything else in them and the barista has to do that within 15 minutes whilst giving what is essentially a TED talk so they'll present um, a, a presentational performance or, on a theme or something that they're interested in passionate about um, or driven by within coffee and link it to the coffee that they're serving you um, it is a hyper it's a hyper kind of elevated version of a cafe situation where you have a barista at this make-believe cafe serving the best coffee in the world quite literally the best coffee in the world to to four judges and then it's just supposed to be supposed to be like a representation of this perfect cafe that could not exist because it wouldn't make money um but what we gain from it from an industry is that we cherry pick these little moments these little techniques that the baristas showcase on stage and we can then apply it to a realistic cafe scenario. And so there are many techniques which baristas use on a day-to-day basis nowadays that came from that coffee competition that were not done before they were presented on stage. And so it raises the industry up, even though it's not realistic in, in what you see, it does raise the industry up. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be involved with it. Um, I've learned a lot in the 15 years prior to it. I've learned more in the five years since I've been judging about coffee as a whole than I did in the entire 15 years prior to it. So it's a wonderful thing. That's that's incredible. So you you mentioned something that brought back a memory of mine. Um, my wife and I like to drink a lot of coffee, as do our children. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went to Door County one time. Uh, if you've ever been to Door County, which is over by Green Bay in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and Right next to our our um, hotel was this very small coffee um, bar, and it was one gal in there working, pounding out coffee by herself, running the till, running everything, and she could she could pound out the coffee like it was amazing, and she kept up, and the line was long, and it and it was like one coffee after another, and they were wonderful coffees too, um, so it was like. I always think back to, you know, vivid uh, coffee memories. And that's one of those coffee memories that I think about. And that just kind of brought that back to me. So, um, so coffee judging, that's, that's, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that that was uh, that big of a deal, but it is, it's kind of cool how it kind of helps to um, uh, improve your industry and, and, uh, and, and take it up a notch. So, so how how have you seen? So you you've been doing this for twenty plus years. What what have you seen in the industry on major changes uh, that have taken place in that time? It's almost too many to mention. I think there's probably within that period of time, if we're if we're thinking about let's say two thousand up to the present day, I think there's probably been 
let's say, two fundamental changes within the industry as a whole. When I say the industry, I should probably probably say like the cafe industry, because the cafes are ultimately where the majority of our coffee ends up. Um, but I think we could probably look at the pandemic as well and pre and post pandemic. So there may be this three changes. But in the mid 2000s, specifically around about 2005, 2006, probably running up to around 2015, we saw a major shift in the way that we the way that cafes started to consider and think about coffee. Uh, well, when I'm talking about coffee, I'm talking about the raw ingredient coffee, specifically espresso, I guess, but also drip coffee. Prior to 2005, maybe prior to 2002, the coffee was very much just a part of the cafe experience, but it wasn't the thing. What I mean by that is, is if you think about your Starbucks, your Caribou's, um, if you think about maybe the, the I don't know if you if you watch ever watch any sitcoms, but if you think about Friends or Frasier, the cafes there, the, the central perks and, and that kind of thing, that coffee shops, those coffee shops, coffee wasn't the reason that you went there. You went there for the environment, right? You went there, the coffee was a part of it, but you went there for the sit down, for the comfy, maybe to do some work. We meet with friends and chat, all of these good things, which are wonderful. But coffee as a whole, the actual product was not really dealt with as if it was a quality product it was just a thing that we kind of just consumed there that changed that changed in the early 2000s i mean there were people who cared far like cared about it a lot in the 90s and prior to that too but from a consumer standpoint that started to change in around about the mid 2000s and so as consumers started to ask questions because they had an especially different or good coffee that just peaked something where they were like huh that's different and so they would ask a barista about it maybe the barista couldn't answer but enough cafe owners paid attention to that noticed that and then started to pay attention themselves and so suddenly rather than having this just coffee being the roasted bean and the liquid that we have in our cup and we don't think about it beyond those things suddenly we started to think about origin we started to think, well, where did these beans come from? Why does this bean taste different to this one? Like, why does these drinks that I'm consuming taste different to another drink that I also loved somewhere else? And we started to look at it at, at what it actually is, which is an agricultural product. And it's an agricultural product that undergoes all of the same stresses, all of the same things that any other agricultural product does. It's often compared to wine, and wine, to some degree, is a good way of thinking about it at least at farm level terroir plays a huge aspect in in coffee climate has a huge um impact on the quality of that coffee and so in those mid-2000s we had cafes that stopped trying to become your lounge where you could just go and just slump on a couch and just sit around caffeine and just chat with your friends and started to be focused on the product itself to try and educate the consumer because to be quite frank they were able to charge a higher price right they were able to charge a higher price but in doing so pay farmers slightly more and buy a higher quality of coffee and we started to as an industry place value on quality over quantity and for centuries that had not been the case so for centuries it had been quantity that garnered price right they, they got the highest price so from a farmer's perspective i was not incentivized at all to be growing high quality coffee i just needed to grow a lot of it and as quickly as i could and so we as consumers took that and we consumed it and that's what we understood coffee to be but it was only when we as consumers started to pay attention that the price of value and quality became real and so farmers could some farmers could start to focus on quality as well 
And so in those mid-2000s, we started to see the rise of what we call third-wave shops. We kind of moved past that now. But your third-wave coffee shop is a step beyond your Starbucks, a step beyond your Caribou, where coffee of different varietals, different origins is put but front and center for the consumer, should they wish to really learn about and educate themselves. So, I mean, that's a huge shift and that still exists today. Where we are within coffee today, it pays, it has a lot to do, if not everything to do with that kind of shift within the mid 2000s. But I will say we went a bit too far uh, as an industry, as a cafe industry in, in, in the mid teens, maybe the early to the mid 2010s, um, we jokingly refer to cafes kind of we, it's the no period we could we kind of the insiders call it the no period where you would go to a cafe potentially and ask could i get a vanilla latte and they'd say no um <laughs> they'd say could i get some milk in, in my black coffee and they'd say no because they just were so hyper focused on the quality of the coffee being the thing and how dare you even consider messing with that thing and i feel like we needed to get that far you sometimes to understand where you need to be you need to go slightly too far to kind of pull yourself back for it and go okay this is a comfortable point and that was about the mid-teens 2014 2015 we started to kind of leave that no period behind and now what we seem to find broadly speaking within cafes is we've got this high quality coffee with an excellent focus on that coffee, but also with a little more of the hospitality and a little more of the customer service, a little more of the comfort that we would expect maybe from those early 90s cafes that I kind of previously mentioned. So we've been able to combine the two. And all of that really has to do with the consumer because the consumer is now more educated than they were before. So they understand the quality of the coffee and then they're happy to pay for it. But they also want to sit down and have a chat with their friends as well. The two don't have to be exclusive. They can actually work together. That's awesome. That's a really good overview of that because um, I, I do think it is, you know, like everything in our business, it's in the business world, it's consumer driven. I mean, um, your consumer is becoming very, very much more acute and, and smarter. I don't feel like I've got the taste buds to do that, to, to differentiate a ton between things. I guess maybe the next time I'm in Minneapolis, I'm going to have to come down there and, and you're going to have to give me just a little lesson on, on the differences and nuances between them. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I want to tell you a little, do you want to hear a story about my daughter, Andrea? I, I would was, love to hear, I would I love to hear a story about your daughter. She's going to kill me when I tell this story. <laughs> I'm it anyway, because I can, because I'm her dad. Yes. Um, so we're at, uh, we're in Bismarck at the mall and there's a Starbucks in there and it's around Christmas time. And of course, you know, there's some Christmas holiday drinks there and Andrea steps up and orders her drink. And she said, I would like an iced reindeer steamer. And which uh, reindeer steamer is just froth milk. And uh, so the lady says, so you want cold milk, ma'am? <laughs> and and uh, yeah, I, I guess that's I guess that's what I want. I, I guess yeah. that's what I want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it sounded more impressive than 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 it actually was. So yeah, so sorry about that, Andy. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so there there are definitely some uh, differences uh, between different drinks, and maybe I'm going to have you dive into a little bit of difference between an espresso. Yeah. Cappuccino, Americano, those sort of things. You want to kind of explain a little bit that to that to the audience? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll stop from going too deep. Uh, one of the things I love about cafe culture is that you can go to ten cafes and you'll have ten different menus, or you could order the same drink 
on each menu and you'll get a slightly different variant of it. And I, I, I love that. I know it can be frustrating to certain some people because they're like, I love a cappuccino and then they go somewhere else and the cappuccino is different how they love it. But for me, that's exciting. For me, that's like, that's why caf different cafes exist. Otherwise we may as well just be done with it and have Starbucks take over everywhere. Right. Um, but if we're talking about the different drinks, then I mean, espresso is your base. Espresso is your base drink. And espresso um, as, as the, it's an Italian word that essentially means pressed and it's a brewing process. It is not just the liquid and it, it, it means two things. Yes, the tiny little Demitas cup with two ounces of hot concentrated coffee is called an espresso. But espresso is a brewing process, which is to say it's a process of brewing coffee that utilizes a mechanical pump that pumps 200 degree water at nine bars of pressure through a tightly packed bed of coffee. Um, and that then gives us the espresso drink, the espresso coffee that we get at the end of it. A double espresso is typically two ounces, two to two and a half ounces. If we're in Italy, maybe two and a half, three ounces, because Italians go a little longer there. But broadly speaking, it's around two to three ounces for a double espresso. A single is likely to be around about an ounce. If we move it on from an espresso, you could look at the espresso macchiato. Uh, that's an interesting one in today's culture. The word macchiato was taken by Starbucks, which is they're within their rights to do. It's not a trademark word. Um, and they turned it into a completely different drink. But the macchiato in Italian, macchiato means marked with or stained with. So an espresso macchiato would literally be just that double espresso with a tiny bit, just like a spoonful of thickly steamed milk that's just on the top of it. That thickly steamed milk will have a beautiful sweetness to it so that that espresso just has a tight, slightly bitter edge. You're just going to balance that out with that little bit of steamed milk. That's your macchiato. Um, you're there, we can go to the lattes and cappuccinos. So lattes and cappuccinos are just when we're steaming milk um, and then pouring that milk into that espresso. Broadly speaking, again, traditionally, the, 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 the cappuccino would have a thicker foam. It would have a thicker aeration. Um, more air would be inserted into the milk during the steaming process, whereas your latte would be slightly less, although still some air, but it would have slightly less air. Typically as well, your, your latte may be a slightly bigger, but that's not always the case. Again, that comes down to cafe culture. Some cafes like a small cappuccino, et cetera, they, 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 that can vary from place to place. And then maybe the other popular drink that people know will, will be the Americano. Uh, Americano is just an espresso with hot water. Um, I don't know how this how much of this is true, but the the, 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 the the myth, shall we say, or the story that runs around the Americano is that during during the World Wars, American soldiers who were stationed in Italy wanted coffee, but the only coffee they could get is, is espresso because that's all coffee is in Italy. If you ask for a coffee, you get an espresso. Um, and so they asked for their espressos to be topped up with hot water. And the Italians thought they were absolutely wild and, and just called them crazy Americanos. And that's where the, that's where the, word for the drink comes from i don't know how true that is but it seems like it makes sense maybe <laughs> that's awesome so i i you know as you were walking through the different drinks i had a drink a coffee drink in um, las vegas at a coffee shop in the, the foyer of the venetian can't think of the the name of it it might have been no it wasn't lily but i can't think of the name of it but they made a um espresso on the bottom and then cold sweetened froth on the top and that was one of the best that was one of the best drinks i've had i i would and i've tried to get uh coffee shops around here to try and replicate it because it's kind of labor intensive i think 
Mm-hmm. Um, cold, cold, yeah, cold foam is a fairly new, a fairly new invention. Like it, it, it's, uh, there are various ways to achieve it. It's a fairly new thing, but I will say that sounds absolutely delicious. <laughs> it was incredible. The sweetened, the sweetened part of it was like took it over the edge. So, yeah. So um, that's a great overview of the different the different variations. So, how about like brewing machines? Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you guys sell espresso machines. I'm thinking. Yeah. You sell only commercial, or do you sell retail as well? Commercial. We're, we're, we're a business. We're a business to business company. That that's really our aim. Although we do sell espresso machines that are technically home machines. They're smaller espresso machines, but they're commercial grade, so they're still NSF. They're suitable for use in a cafe, should you wish. Okay. All right. So what 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 kind of machines do you have at home to brew your coffee? What do you use, and what and what do you recommend? Well. This is this is I I shouldn't say this out loud. I don't really drink coffee at home. <laughs> Not really. Um, number one, my wife doesn't actually like coffee at all, which <laughs> which is you know I, it, we we get by. We work we work it out. It's fine. Um, and and I have a lot of coffee in work, obviously, and I am very fortunate to work with some phenomenal equipment like equipment that you could never afford commercial equipment with some incredible coffee and so i think even if i had equipment at home and i drank coffee at home i wouldn't be able to replicate what i get on a monday to friday within work and so just i drink tea at home believe it or not i'm a tea drinker well you probably would believe it i'm welsh yeah, yeah. i'm a tea i'm a tea i'm a tea drinker at home really? um, what what do you i'm gonna ask you steve like do you drink coffee i haven't even asked you that and if you do how do you brew it at home what's your brew method of choice i drink way too much coffee okay i do um we have a i think it's called a bonavita um oh yeah yeah that's uh it was recommended to me by a fellow pharmacist he said you need to get one of these it brews eight cups at a time and we um somehow can uh get coffee through your company through some customer service rep somehow somehow i can't imagine how that which we buy like two and a half pound bags and they last three days no i'm just kidding <laughs> that's a lot of coffee steve <laughs> but i actually i i my my coffee drinking started um do you remember do you ever remember uh nestle food international coffee drinks those red containers do you remember them? I'm, I'm, I don't remember them, but I'm familiar with them. They never yeah. made it to Wales, but I know, I know about them now. Yeah, I started with that. Um, that was my first, because I used to be a big time pop drinker. I drank Mountain Dew for many, many years. And then I moved to Dickinson and I had to cut that out. Um, but I, I then I went to International Foods and then um, a good friend of ours, a priest friend of ours, um, Father Austin Vetter, Bishop Vetter now, um, he introduced us to espresso making and we got an espresso machine and we did that for many years. And then I would uh, make it with chocolate milk. I love chocolate milk and espresso, man. That was nothing better than that. Then graduated to cold brew or where we just would sit it, let it sit for a day or two and then uh, strain it off and do that. Did that for a while. And now we're just back to, to drip coffee. And um, I try and do that just to, I don't need to be drinking chocolate milk, you know, two times a day or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, brewed coffee, and I put a little half and half in there, and that's pretty mm-hmm. drinking now. I drink Americanos before going out. So, 
Yeah, that's I, I, I find it fascinating and really interesting to hear how people drink their coffee. And I, like I said very early on, I'm, I'm, I am a coffee judge, but I am not judgmental about people's coffee. They're the people, a question that I get asked a lot, I'm, I'm sure you can imagine by people is like, what's like, what's the best coffee? Like, what's the best coffee? And my answer to that is always the one that you like, right? Like I can tell you what my favorite coffee is, but that doesn't mean that you're going to like it, and that's okay. <laughs> and so the way that you, the coffee that you choose to drink, and the way that you choose to brew it, if you enjoy it and it works for you, that is the best way for you. What I can do is offer alternatives, or if you're having, if you like it, but you're like it's maybe just a touch too bitter, or it's a touch too acidic, I can diagnose through analyzing your process. I can diagnose ways that you could potentially alter that. Um, one of my favorite things about coffee, and I think it's fairly unique to coffee as, as, as a food product or even as a food and drink product, is that we as the consumer have the final say in how this thing tastes. And what I mean by that is going using the wine analogy again, once I buy a bottle of wine, I haven't really got much choice in how this tastes other than whether I chill it or not, if it's a white wine right it just is what it is and even if i'm a sommelier and i'm super qualified and i'm incredibly experienced i'm still not making that wine for my guests in the restaurant it just is the the brewer the beer that you're served it just is even food yes the chef creates a meal but the core ingredients that the chef receives they are what they are right the pieces of meat that he gets from the butcher the quality is predetermined but you and i when we get a coffee bean it can be the best coffee bean in the world. But if I then treat that bean incorrectly through my brew method, I can make it taste absolutely awful, right? Absolutely terrible. And I can't think of many things, if anything, where we have such power to fundamentally ruin, but likewise fundamentally improve the quality of the thing that we're consuming, which I think why, why coffee is so fascinating for so many people in so many ways because we can get as deep into it as we want or stay as far back from it as we want and still just enjoy it in a red can of Nestle, right? Like we can simplify it and just enjoy that or go deep and start to understand that we have a lot of power and control and can start to really play with different flavors and producing different flavors from the same coffee in the way that we brew it. So I think it's really interesting. That's why I was asking how you brew it. I, I just find that fascinating. Yeah. That, that's amazing when you when you speak of it like that, because I didn't ever think, you know, you can buy the best bean, but if you don't grind it right or you mm -hmm. look it wrong, it's like it's, it's going to be bad. So, wow. So, so, so then I shouldn't judge anybody that drinks Folgers or Sanka or anything because it's their coffee and they like it, right? Yeah. I mean, you can judge them internally, of course. <laughs> <laughs> No, you you shouldn't judge them. I don't judge them for it. I that so they, they, this this is a little mind blowing for some people, but we're just going to go there, okay? Um, Folgers, Sanka, like all of those, the freeze dried coffees, but just let's just say coffee from like 1980, 1990 back. That's maybe what we think of as being coffee flavored. Like if I ask you to imagine a coffee flavored thing, so a coffee flavored ice cream or a coffee flavored chocolate we all have a fairly standard idea of what coffee flavor is okay that's, that's agreed upon that is not the flavor of coffee <laughs> that is the flavor of roast okay? Okay. that's the flavor of roast 
the reason for that, this comes back to what I was talking about quality and how we value, we've now started, we've now started fairly recently to value quality within coffee. Well, what do we mean with quality? Well, what we mean with quality is that the coffee cherry at the agricultural level has a higher level of sugar and has a higher level of aromatics, of acid, just as a higher level of good stuff in it because it's been grown as an agricultural product with care. Like when we grow any plant with care, it will fruit or flower more abundantly if we treat it correctly. And because we do that, we now have coffee that tastes great, right? If we don't roast it that far. If we go back 1990, 1980 and before, centuries before, the quality of the coffee was low down. It didn't have a lot of the good stuff in it. It just had caffeine essentially. And if you tried to not roast it that far, if you tried to lightly roast it, it was fairly unpalatable. It, all it really contained was citric acid. It had very little supporting sweetness. It was just unpalatable. And so we just roasted the heck out of it. Like the roasters would just roast the heck out of it. And so your Folgers, your freeze dries, but all of those dark, dark roasted coffees that we think of as being coffee-flavored aren't actually coffee-flavored, really. They're roast-flavored coffee is very acidic it's a cherry or at least it's the product of a cherry and cherries are tart now that's not to say that everybody should like the flavor of coffee now that we're experiencing it but what's interesting is that a lot of people have been experiencing it for the first time in the in the, maybe the lot like now or in the last 5 10 15 years and saying i don't like all this new coffee that tastes all weird which is fair enough to say but it's just actually a fact that they're now tasting coffee for the first time um, and they're not they haven't actually tasted coffee before <laughs> which is a really weird thing to think about but it's very true that's incredible that's that's a that's a great way to put it i i wow yeah so the roasting the the roast flavor so basically burning it right yes. burning it yep. that's what we're tasting is the burnt part of it yeah and so because of that we add cream to it we add sugar to it we <laughs> add all the good things to it because the coffee never had it to begin with. And when you burn something, it's not particularly nice. And so we add things to it so it tastes nice. I, I, I'm not a black coffee evangelist. I don't tell everybody they have to drink their coffee black. But when I brew some of the very, very expensive coffees that I am very fortunate that I get to play with sometimes, I do encourage everybody to at least taste it black and then let it cool down so that it's not so hot that we can't fully taste it. And it's amazing how many people say to me, I don't like coffee or I don't like coffee black, but I can drink this black and it's really good. I'm like, we don't need to add sugar to it. We don't need to add these things to it because it's naturally occurring within this. This is the product of the cherry, not to beat that drum, but it's got those parts. It takes those parts. If you still like a, a splash of cream in it, cool, because I'm with you. Things with cream in taste great. <laughs> um, so I'm all for all that. And if you want to add a sugar because it's not sweet enough, absolutely go for it. I genuinely won't judge you. But I do encourage people just to, when you have a higher higher quality coffee, try it black. And I think it will be an eye-opening experience. Even if you don't love it, it won't taste like anything you've tasted before. Well, I didn't, I didn't ever think of the fact that, you know, we... Try and always drink it when it's so hot. Yeah, you're you're not really able to to experience or enjoy it, huh? Absolutely. Your okay. tongue your tongue goes into your tongue goes into protection mode at around about 150 150 degrees. Your tongue starts to stop tasting and start protecting. And so when we drink anything hotter than that, you're not tasting it fully. That's not a bad thing. 
with regards to old older coffees, like mm. because it didn't taste good as it cooled down. Um, espresso is the perfect example of that. That for years I was taught as a baby barista that you can't let your espressos cool down too much, otherwise they oxidize. I'm doing a quote unquote there with my fingers. They oxidize. What does that mean? What it means is it cools down. And when it cooled down, what happened was you would taste it more fully. Unfortunately, the quality of the espresso was not there to support tasting it more fully, so it tasted really bad. Well, a fun fact today is when I go to a, when I go to um, barista competitions and we judge the coffees that we're being served there, the espresso that we're being served there, the baristas are serving, the competitors are serving it to us with iced spoons and it's instructing us to stir the espresso 15, 20 times with an ice spoon to bring the temperature down to about 150 to 145 degrees so that we can fully taste this espresso. And when you do that, this espresso tastes, and this is where I will sound pretentious, but it, it tastes like berries and flowers and all kinds of tropical fruits running through there. It's incredibly sweet. It's a beautiful thing. Um, and if we try it at a hot temperature, you wouldn't be able to taste those things. Wow. Wow. Did not know that. Wow. Oh. So um, how do, how do, what's, can you give any advice on storing our coffee? Yeah. It's always a, that's always a, a kind of big deal. Cause I always thought, well, put it in the freezer. That's a great place to store it. Mm -hmm. Um. I'm going to give you an unsatisfactory answer for the first for the first part. I, I personally try to drink as much as I can within about about two to three weeks, and then I give it to a friend. Um, that's a good <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good way to do it. Um, the freezer. I, 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 there's a couple of uh, coffee friends of mine who have a YouTube channels who've done a pretty extensive research on this actually. So I'm just going to take from their findings. Um, you can get some different pots, um, storage containers that you're able to actually extract the majority of the air from. So the air seal, but they're not just sealed. They seal with an air seal, but then they've got like a twisty thing on the top that you turn and it actually evacuates all of the air inside of there. They do a fantastic job or a very good job, but freezing it is the best way to do it long term. You just have to ensure a couple of things. Number one, you want to avoid freezer burn, of course, so don't let it be too cold. Number two, if you can, is to store it in is to store it in um, portions, so to freeze it in the portion that you need. Mm -hmm. So rather than freeze like a five-pound bag or a two-pound bag and then just keep repeatedly bringing it in and out of the freezer to take coffee from, just weigh out however much coffee it is you need per portion you know 80 grams 100 grams whatever it is you choose to use and just separate it out and freeze those individually because what happens is when you take it in and out of the freezer you get a small amount of defrosting every single time and coffee beans are very sensitive they're very sensitive and so with that little bit of defrosting you're actually just going to start to get like water content just forming around it and you will your beans will go bad very quickly well so um I the buying the because I think Andrea gets us set up with the two and a half pound bags buying three two and a half pound bags and having them for a couple months I need to rethink storage on that. Yeah, I think I think I think you're fine. What I would say is if you if you can don't open the bags, uh -huh. just open one bag at a time. They're pretty good in the bags. The bags these days have a have a, a one way valve 
in them, which allows the carbon dioxide, the coffee beans to uh, breathe carbon dioxide, breathe is the incorrect word, that's the terrible terminology. Um, they, they give off carbon dioxide and that carbon dioxide escapes through the one-way valve but it doesn't allow oxygen back in. The bags are fully sealed, that's the best, they're opaque. The bags are opaque deliberately, uh, coffee is sensitive to light. So it's important that we try and keep it in the bag for as long as we can. So I would say open one bag at a time and then after about three to four weeks, it'll be fine at three to four weeks opening. At about three to four weeks, I might consider either getting it into a, into a storage container or, or potentially freezing it. Awesome. That's great. Great advice. So um, latte art. Yes. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. Is there a little history on that? Or what? I, I know there's going to be history because you're going to be able to you're going to be able to educate us on that. Tell us a little history on latte art. I, I, I'm aware that. I can talk about coffee all day, so you do have to shut me up, Steve. If I go, if I go on too long, um, latte art's a funny term, right? Because it's uh, it's art on lattes. Like, I guess what and why? I mean, the what is pretty simple. Um, it's different layers or different um, textures, different um, amounts of aerated foams. So we have the espresso. Espresso is a liquid, of course, but actually, it's a liquid with solid. So there's a viscosity to the liquid itself. Um, on top of espresso, we have what we call crema. That's what we can visibly distinguishes it from drip coffee, which is the blonde kind of layer you see on the top. Well, fun fact, crema is just froth, right? It's foam. It's the same as a head on a pint of beer. If we, if we put a liquid under pressure with an emulsifier, it will create a foam. Um, it, with coffee, that is espresso, it's coffee oil, and then we just put it under pressure on an espresso machine, it creates foam. So that's your crema. So your crema is lighter than the liquid espresso therefore it sits on the top well when we steam milk what do we do when we aerate the milk we incorporate air into the milk and that milk will stratify very quickly within the steaming pitcher um, it's our job as a barista to try and incorporate it all together but you can't fight it entirely and it stratifies out like a pint of guinness if you've ever seen it just cascading down the glass in this way if we could see inside the steaming pitcher which we can't but if we could that's what the milk is doing as a barista i'm able to control when the thinner part of that milk comes out and the thicker part of that milk comes out. And with some skill and practice, I can then start to dictate when that thicker part of the foam comes out. And that thicker part of the foam is lighter than the crema on the espresso, and so it will sit on the top of it. So when you see white on top of crema within a latte or a cappuccino, that white is technically latte art, right? It's the white of the foam resting or floating on top of the crema skilled baristas then start to manipulate that white we start to be able to move that jug we start to take advantage of the circular shape of the cup knowing that liquid will take the form of whatever we pour into so that's circular so you'll see a lot of patterns in, in your lattes that will be circular in shape so hearts for example a heart is just a circle with a dent at the back and a point at the front uh, you'll see hearts and we can stack the hearts on top of each other we get all kinds of wiggly wavy lines that's latte art, right? And we get various forms of it. It doesn't improve the flavor of your drink, but it definitely improves your experience of drinking it because it's a sign of professionalism. You you can have confidence that if you have exceptional latte art in your latte, it's likely going to taste exceptional as well because if they can do that, they can probably dial in the espresso grinder and all of the steps in between to make it taste good. The history of latte art, I mean, it goes back way before we knew it was latte art. I mean, I, I referenced that when I fell in love with making coffee because of it. And it was latte art that just grabbed my eye. And I'm just like, what on earth is this? I mean, the, the history goes way beyond that. Um, there was a there's a cafe in Seattle called Vivaci, Espresso Vivaci, I think. 
I think that's right. Um, David Schumer, that's the name that just came out of nowhere. He actually wrote a book on latte art. So I, I'd say it definitely it definitely came before David. In Italy, they were doing latte art for years. Again, not knowing what we're doing. We're just doing the thing because we're baristas and something that we do. But David actually wrote a book on it, called it Latte Art, talked about how to do it. So I guess mid-90s is when it came into the popular consciousness. Um, but I think with the advent of the, the internet and, and I think um, the advent of Instagram and, and apps such as that where we're able to share photos, suddenly it just expanded our entire latte art world. Because there I was, it was a baby barista in a small fishing village in Mumbles, in Swansea in Wales, just doing darty art on my own, being the only person in the village doing this weird thing with milk. And suddenly I'm just able to go on my phone and see someone in South Korea doing exactly the same thing, but 10 times more advanced than I'd ever seen in my life. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, there's other people in the world that do this weird thing with milk. Um, <laughs> and it, it's something that there's this culture of latte art that I was just not aware of before. And so in the last five years, the, the quality, the designs, the patterns, the skill involved has just grown exponentially. The, the, the things that people can do with milk these days are, are phenomenal, unbelievable. Wow. Wow. That's that's wonderful explanation of that. Um, so we, when we think about coffee, we think, I think, you know, because uh, as a healthcare professional, mm -hmm. that there is some health benefit to coffee. So um, I did a little research um, and pulled together just a little bit of information that I want to share with the listeners. So um, PubMed, are you familiar with PubMed? Yes. Oh, okay. PubMed. So PubMed, yeah. PubMed is uh, where where we go to get uh, articles on on different diseases or drugs or whatever. Um, and I just punched in um, in their search engine coffee, and there were nineteen hundred and sixty one uh, studies out there that were done on coffee <laughs> at some, some point in time. So, um, but we know that. Uh, Obviously, there's antioxidants in coffee. It's a berry, like you did explain. It's a berry, so we know there's going to be that in there. And there's some micronutrients in there scattered in there as well. So in July of 2017, a pair of large studies published in the Annals of Medicine actually found drinking coffee seems to promote longevity, which I'm all about longevity these days. Excellent, yeah. Looking at roughly 700,000 people from different racial backgrounds, cultural and ethnic backgrounds, drinking more coffee was linked to a lower risk of death. So we know that there are studies on that. We know there are studies that have shown that it can reduce the risk of cancer, prostate, endometrial skin, and liver cancer. Um, so there's tons of information out there that I think is going to bolster the fact that I like to drink coffee and I like to drink it often and it's going to help me <laughs> hopefully. So, um, so what's next for you and uh, in your journey in coffee, where, where do you see yourself headed? Um, it's a great question. I mean, I don't necessarily look too far ahead at any one given moment. Um, I, I guess within coffee, I, I very much enjoy the judging aspect of it. I think it has allowed me to grow as a coffee professional. It's allowed me to be a better trainer. It's allowed me to see parts of the United States that I would never have seen before as well. That's an added bonus. Um, but there is actually a World Coffee Championships. Um, the winner of the United States Coffee Championship, Breezy Championships, will go on to represent the US at the Worlds every year. Um, and... I am looking, I will definitely at some point be going for my qualification. We have to set a certification to become a world's judge. So I'll be looking to become a world's judge in the future, hopefully in the not too distant future. And then I would very much love to 
go and judge the World Coffee Championships, which again sounds incredibly extravagant again for for a boy from a small fishing village in Wales. Um, but yeah, that would be fantastic. I just love going to these events and meeting people who, who are far their knowledge and coffee skills far exceed my own, and so it's it's lovely to meet people who I can and geek out with and and just learn from. Um, I think that's a always a very pleasurable thing. That that's kind of uh, the same way I feel about my business and and uh, healthcare and trying to help patients and finding uh, unique tools to to help our patients differently. I I feel that when I get to go to conferences and events and meet different people and learn what they're doing and how they're handling their patients, it's it's a very similar aspect only in a totally different uh, sector of business. So. Now we get a now we get to talk just a little bit about uh, mountain biking and your Love passion to. for biking. I I um if you ask Andrea, I used to watch the you know the the Tour de France in the middle of the night, or I'd come home at ten o'clock at night from work or whatever late, much later than that sometimes, and we'd uh, force them to watch Tour de France with me, Lance Armstrong before. You know, before he he's got his you know whole thing tainted by, <laughs> that was just that disappointed me. But you tell me about your biking and 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 your passion for biking because that's that's uh, it's fun, man. It's just yeah, good. yeah. I I I I've ridden bikes obviously like like a lot of us. I, I think I've ridden bikes since I was I was tiny. Um, I think living in Wales, it's a very very mountainous country, and so I. My mother, my mother never drove. My mother never passed a driving test. And so we didn't have a car in the family when I was growing up. And so when I got to like 10, 11, 12, and I had a little more kind of freedom to go and visit my friends, if they lived like five, 10 miles away, I had to jump on my bike and cycle five or 10 miles. And so that's what I did. And it, so it became a form of transport. That's how I got around. But that was just the end of like on my road bikes. My mountain biking really started i think potentially because I, i've got a brother who's six years older than me and so obviously when it, when you're a little kid and your brother's like 13 14 he's the coolest guy in the world and he's he had a mountain bike he worked in a bike shop that was specializing in mountain bikes at that time but i think i've got a little bit of uh, a little bit of the want to do what he did so i kind of wanted to do that um but this was in the 90s and as i'm sure you're aware mountain biking in the 90s was a very very different thing to mountain biking today um but mountain biking specifically was my sport as opposed to road biking, which is not to say I dislike road bike. I, I very much enjoy it, but I think it's probably because it was so functional for me. It served as such just a, a mode of transport that I don't get the same form of relaxation. And I, I get very little, if any, adrenaline from road biking. The only time, weirdly, the only time I really used to get very excited on my road bike was when on big climbs. I would go and find the biggest climbs that I possibly could and just really just grind out the big climbs because you get that sense of satisfaction when you're coming down the other side of it. But on a mountain bike, I get that feeling of relaxation, that feeling of, 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 of well-being um, more than anything else I've ever done in my life. Um, it, it's, it's a form of meditation for me. It's, it's me and this ribbon of single track cut into the side of a wonderful mountain with views, panoramic views of the most beautiful place in the world but if you pick your head up for one second to take advantage of these views, you will fall off and suffer considerable injury. And so it is you and the single track and nothing else. There can be nothing else in your mind. And when you hit that flow state, 
when you hit that state that you're able to relax fully on your bike, even though you're doing 20 miles an hour down a rugged, rocky piece of single track and your wheels are leaving the ground, it feels safe. And by and large, it is, I guess, through experience, like there's always an element of danger, but you're in control of it. And I, I've never found anything that's able to give me that feeling. Um, and when I moved here, to be very honest with you, I didn't bring my bike because I assumed that there would be no mountains. And I was quite right. There were, there were very few mountains in Minneapolis. There is a hill. I saw the hill in Minneapolis once. Um, but if you go up north, there are some really good trails, um, really good trails. So I brought my bike over after I moved here, maybe after three years. And those three years, my wife said she just, I was getting angsty. I was unsettled. I didn't have an outlet. Um, and when I ride my bike, it's a reset. It's, it's, it's my, it's my reset button that relaxes me and gets me ready for the, the, the week ahead if I'm doing it on a weekend. So it's something that I love dearly. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a happy place. I, I can relate to that. I, the, the feeling of bombing down a single track where you're a little scared, but a little excited and just like hyper in tune to the, the trail. And, and, uh, and when you're in shape, it's obviously much more enjoyable. <laughs> so being in yeah, shape, that helps. Yeah. So you, um, so you've ridden Cayuna up there. Have you? I have. Yeah. You get up just there. The, just the, just the once, unfortunately. Um, but I will get up there this year, definitely. Yeah, I have. Uh, we have uh, my wife's side of the family has three siblings that live up in that area in the summer, have cabins. So we get up there. I try and get get there at least twice the summer and sneak over there in the early morning and mm-hmm. ride until my heart's content and come home and eat a big breakfast and you know, kind of play on the water a little bit after that. So, yeah, great it's, stuff. It's- that's dreamy. I'm just going to ask if you've ridden Redhead mountain bike, which trails, which are just slightly further north. I have not. Where's that at Redhead? Where I, I want. I I want to tell you, but I can't remember the name. But if you look up Redhead mountain bike trails, they've actually had a documentary made about them um, because they they fought for the rights to make the trails around the quarries in that area. Similar oh. similar red iron trails to Cayuna, but it's just a slightly different. Slightly rockier, slightly more rugged terrain. Not more extreme, but slightly more rugged and rocky. Definitely worth, definitely worth checking out if you're if you're up that area. I just wrote it down. So and there you go. When you uh, make the trip out to Western North Dakota, then we're going to take you out to the Matahe Trail and and uh, do a, do a twenty mile loop or something like that. I think you would enjoy. It. It's a totally different than um, what what we're probably used to. But definitely different than uh, Cayuna that's got tons of trees and lots of rock and and lakes and things but just it's kind of a fun trail to to be on that's that's where i like to ride so well uh barnaby it has been more than a pleasure to uh visit with you today tonight and i appreciate you taking the time to do this because i i you know you're just basically doing it out of the kindness of your heart so thank you and uh to our listeners that have uh made it all the way through the podcast uh, your reward is 25% off a uh, nutritional supplement of your choice uh, using the code. I don't know if you've ever been included in a code, but it's going to be the Barnaby Holmes podcast code for telephone and in-person orders at the pharmacy. So um, Barnaby, it's been a pleasure. I learned a ton about coffee and uh, thanks. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Steve. As always, be vigilant about your health.